Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. In the future, we may settle billions and billions of planets across this galaxy and maybe beyond, but might these be eclipsed by far greater numbers of megastructural habitats? Hello everyone and welcome to Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, as we celebrate reaching 750,000 subscribers to our show, shortly before we celebrate 9 years of this show next month. As you may know, that first episode was a summary of types of megastructures and we did a new and improved version last year, the Megastructural Compendium, our longest episode to date and the only one with someone else, my wife Sarah, helping do the narration. While I was producing that episode I realized that it had left out a key piece of discussion that the first episode had, about why our future might see us preferring megahabitats over terraforming planets, and the pros and cons of both. And the overlap too, as some megastructures are essentially planets. Indeed some like the Birch planets are the biggest planets you could ever make. We had also just gotten data back from Nebula, our streaming service, that folks were preferring short bonus episodes over extended editions specifically, which we had been doing the prior year, so I decided to make Plants vs. Megastructures as an episode there, and have been making around one of those a month since. And while I like having that extra content for our paying audience, and some of those bonus episodes wouldn't do well on YouTube, I've always meant to share those videos to YouTube after a year or so of Nebula exclusive access and us hitting 750,000 subscribers seems a great time to start doing that, with a new one every month or two. Of course if you don't want to wait on those, you can see all those Nebula exclusives and extended editions, including this week's new one, Retro Causality, by clicking the link to join Nebula in the episode description. Also as a heads up, I've only re-recorded this introductory segment and since then have had quite a lot of speech therapy and surgery on my tongue, so you may notice a difference, and even more of one if you go back and watch that original Megastructural Summary episode afterward. The show has both stayed the same and shifted a lot since then, and it's been a joy to produce, and I cannot say thank you enough to every subscriber who helped make this show possible by tuning in every week. And with that said, grab a drink and a snack, and let's get started. Welcome to Planets vs. Megastructures, a Nebula exclusive, and something of a companion video to our episode The Megastructural Compendium, which at nearly 2 hours length didn't seem like it needed any more content added into it. That episode itself was a remake of our original episode on YouTube back in 2014, and for all that was 4 times longer than the original, for all the new and improved content, it left out the context of what that original episode was really all about which was to introduce all those awesome megastructures to folks as alternatives to planets, and also to sci-fi writers so they could have some new, and in my opinion, more realistic settings than random planets with a single outpost on them, as is so common in sci-fi. Now we're principally interested in the realistic pros and cons of megastructures compared to planets today, but I did want to include that fictional world-building aspect just because so much of that original episode was about that too. Plus, for most of us, this is also daydream fuel too. I should also add that all of this depends on the megastructure under discussion as well. Principally today, we mean cylinder habitats, 
Obviously, if we're discussing one of our BWC megastructures, like a flat earth, something you build just because you can, its pluses over a natural planet are a lot harder to justify. Alternatively, many megastructures have nothing to do with planet substitution. A big power beaming array works just as well for planets as swarms of habitats, same for the various weapons and defensive platforms or megastructures that are essentially just replicas of planets. Alternatively, an artificial star orbiting a large rogue planet in the depths of interstellar space exists to make that planet habitable. So the big three pros of megastructures as a concept are that they use less mass than planets, and you can put them more places, and third, when it's a habitation structure, it's easier to mimic most Earth conditions. The usual big cons against them are that they need maintenance, that they require building whereas planets already exist, that they're fragile compared to planets, and that they take enormous cost to build. There's a few other points but I want to address those categories foremost. So planets versus megastructures, first point, planets take more mass to build. On the one hand this is absolutely true compared to a rotating habitat. You are standing on a lot of ground, depending on where you are on the planet, it is 6,371,000 meters or 21 million feet to the core, and that's a thick rock and magma and a lot of molten iron. A space station though probably only needs to be around a foot or at most a meter wide to serve as good protection from radiation, and micrometeors, especially if we're talking about a solid slab of steel or granite or similar. If we instead think of Earth as being several million sheets a meter deep, that's an awful lot of ground for space habitats, millions of times as much using the same mass. Now that is very minimalist, you would probably have several meters of landscaping, but even if we were talking a kilometer or mile wide sheet of ground and water underneath folks living in a rotating habitat or shell world, which would seem extreme overkill, you are talking about getting thousands of times the surface area from the same mass. What's more, those are rare materials. Virtually the entire universe is hydrogen and helium unless we throw in dark matter, which only adds that ratio if we're talking about the rarity of good planets or megastructural construction materials like iron or carbon. So even if people can't stand living in cylinder habitats with spin gravity, or we never invent artificial gravity, you've got the option for giant shell worlds, and there's actually a sweet spot not much smaller than Saturn where you can be keeping a shell supported by the compressed gas pressure of the hydrogen or helium inside, if active support is out of our reach. Even when we're talking thick shells meant to simulate deep landscape or hoard atmospheres, the pressure of the air lifts back against the ground's weight, essentially the Edosphere or Edo bubble we discussed in the Megastructures Compendium. Given how much the universe is hydrogen, helium, and dark matter, we might see a lot of these style of artificial planets too, as they represent a decent way to keep gases contained for eventual use, and the natural gravity makes it easier to store them without them leaking while also removing the enormous gravity burden of brown dwarfs or stars for removing them later if you want them for fuel. Alternatively, big rotating habitats will probably tend to have non-rotating protective superstructure and thick-walled tanks full of hydrogen and helium make for nice storage tanks and protective armor. So on point one, that they are just way more efficient with mass, that one seems hands down a winner for megastructures. On point two, the advantage of megastructures is not just that you can put them where you want, but also that they are generally more mobile too. A planet can be moved and we discussed how in our episode Planet Ships, much as we can alter day or year length, 
But these are extreme brute force efforts comparable to flat out building a planet in terms of importing or moving mass, and they are not quick, you don't just move a planet one day. Alternatively most cylinder habitat megastructures are inherently mobile. They can pack up and leave if they don't like their neighbors, and for the same reason that they need less mass, they need way less fuel to move too. I suspect a spaceship with a habitation drum would be a lot lighter and more built with regular motion in mind, but it's an obvious and trivial safety feature to put engines on a cylinder habitat. What's more, especially with things like O'Neill cylinders and other smaller habs, it is easier to get agreement to move, as it's more like one town voting to head out and leave their larger conglomeration than an entire planetary population wanting to. So too, given that the whole ground is artificial and that individual homes are likely to have fears of vacuum decompression in mind, it might be normal for such habitats to have docking ports through their hull where people's individual homes essentially parked, so your home might be something you could move like an RV, a personal spaceship, if that habitat was leaving and you didn't want to, potentially your entire land parcel too, I can't imagine ways in which an individual segment might be modular on habitats, especially any hammer hab design, which can be easily adapted to any ring or torus variety. Though that brings up the first counter-argument against megastructures, that they are fragile compared to planets, and of course that does depend on the megastructure. One thing to remember is that while there's thousands of kilometers of rock under your feet to absorb damage on a planet, that's under you, and attacks come through above, so you're only protected by thin air, which is handy in many cases but still isn't exactly a bunker. We are also floating above a giant sea of molten and radioactive metal that's prone to exploding out through volcanoes and often gets whacked by asteroids, so viewing a planet as super safe is not a great idea, just ask the dinosaurs, or Pompeii. Alternatively a cylinder habitat might have several meters of hyperhard structure under your feet, in addition to the dirt and rock of your landscaping, and that is between you and outside attack, plus I have to mention I think they'd all have a superstructure surrounding them, and that might be hundreds of meters or more of graphene tanks filled with hydrogen that could just soak up damage. Plus, habitats can be segmented to provide protection, and innately are too, given that it takes millions of smaller ones to equal a planet in living area. As a plus, since it doesn't mass much, you can move the thing from dangerous spots, and your own gravity isn't adding to the strength of any weapons aimed at you while dragging yours back down like a planet does. This one I would have to call a draw though just because an entire planet, and digging yourself deep into it, is a pretty nice defensive place to be, especially as most are much smaller than Earth and aren't going to have huge magma cores and deep gravity wells. An asteroid base, especially a big one like Ceres, is one enormous castle and you could build hundreds of kilometers deep without problems. So too you can hide in the clouds of gas giants, although presumably inside megastructures like chandelier cities. It's also pretty trivial for a civilization to have sensors and weapon outposts to protect from natural threats like asteroids, and you can still be deploying non-habitation megastructures for power, industry, and defense. Alternatively, those habitation megastructures offer a lot more people and a lot more locations to defend, meaning it's much harder for someone to wipe you out, because you not only don't have all your eggs in one basket, but have so many more eggs and baskets this way. Now the third advantage, specific to habitation megastructures, is that they can be made more Earth-like in most ways. 
You have that one big issue with spin-gravity habitats of your neighbor's house and lawn being in your sky rather than adjacent to your yard, but there's a lot of tricks for making the sky blue and dealing with the upcurving horizon, like more hill terrain stuffed full of aerogel. You can also do a lot of shallow lakes on habitats for little mass and enjoy normal weather and blue skies that way. Day length weather, seasons, and gravity are easily simulated as the same as Earth, whereas you'll not find many planets that are very Earth-like, and relatively few that can be terraformed to near-Earth-like conditions without massive efforts, especially for day length and seasonal length. Every star has a different habitable zone and different year length that would imply. Now you can fix all that with solar mirrors and shades like we might do to Venus, you could even move the planet or add mass, but all of those are really getting to the point when you are using so much time and energy and needing so much manpower, or robot power, that you're basically in the megastructure zone anyway, and the artificial shellboard variety not the O'Neill Sonar variety. On the one hand, that actually hurts them from a fictional standpoint because a lot of authors are looking for the weird alien landscape and setting, so an Earth clone wouldn't seem ideal. However, megastructures allow vastly more variety than planets would, It's a nice option that can be made Earth-like, it's not a requirement, and I suspect many would be very strange places intentionally. If you are looking for awe-inspiring settings, a billion-mile-long river valley of a Topopolis, or a thousand-mile-tall mountain or deep valley on some ringworld or orbital or mega-Earth is pretty cool, so too is a smoke ring with zero gravity and mountains floating through the air. And while I'd bet 99% of space habitats would follow the formula of being the normal Earth habitat, your suburbs and cities or space farms, that remaining 1% would vastly outnumber planets, given that you make a million times the living area from the same mass, and way more stations than planets since they'd generally be smaller, meaning trillions of times as many habitats as planets, if not quadrillions. And even if only 1 in 1000 of them aims for very alien, that's still way more of them. A galaxy worth of alien landscapes in a single solar system's Dyson Swarm, and they can all have unique ecosystems without the problems of invasive species, that's why space habitats make such nice nature preserves. It also circumvents the whole one-horse town tiny little outpost on a giant planet that's ubiquitous in sci-fi, or the monolithic culture for an entire world, since smaller habitat structures are towns and cities. So universal language and customs on them wouldn't be weird, including ones that would seem absurd for an entire planet to hold for generations as seeming kind of non-functional, like a planet of monks or warriors or accountants or scientists, or techno-primitivists. It would be entirely plausible to have a resort O'Neill or campus habitat or monastery habitat or an intentionally weird one where every effort had been made to make it surreal, or a nature preserve for some extinct animal, or some dangerous genetically engineered super dinosaur, or the world engineered to have giant turtles for islands, or bored people with wings and low gravity, especially as a megastructural civilization is one that's implied to be of immense overall scope, able to go for Kardashev II or Dysonian scales. I view these as pluses for potential authors, but also for us in our actual future. So continuing with the cons, the next one is that megastructures need building and need maintenance and that's mostly true. Key caveats are that terraforming an entire planet is way harder than people tend to assume, and it is not quick. Building a habitat and then building more when you need them is easier, but then so is building a dome on a planet, and more as you need them. 
However, it's important to recognize that building a dome, especially as it does need a floor because natural planetary regolith is likely to be toxic and viciously sharp, is really in the same scale as building a space hab, a small domed community of a few hundred or thousand versus a small cylinder hab of a similar scale is really in the six of one half dozen of the other category, although in a practical economic sense there is bound to be a clear winner, it isn't likely to be an orders of magnitude sort of difference, more of a difference between wood and brick and steel or stone house construction. I think folks assume if you land on a planet and dome some of it, you're going to have a claim on that whole planet too, but realistically I don't see that happening. There's no real reason any community of a few hundred or even thousand colonists would expect to be able to claim more than as far as they can see on the horizon without someone else feeling free to land and claim that too. With a space habitat, it really is yours, you built it in its entirety. Same from a story point of view, some conflict between colonists or some military sci-fi wanting to focus on a regiment or battalion involved in a fight is a lot more plausible when you're a county-sized space habitat, not a planet. Whereas if you want truly insane scales, Mega-Earths and Dyson Spheres permit that in ways classic sci-fi space opera Galactic Empires do not, and don't require FTL hand waves to exist either. Now there is that maintenance aspect, though I'd point out that real planets need that too, especially ecologically, and a terraformed planet is likely to need that even more, especially as you terraform it and start getting mudslides and tsunami from glacial detachments and so on. The assumption is that you're either creating a self-sustaining ecology through genetic engineering and sheer ecological skill, or you've got tons of robots doing it. And we do assume this is all getting done by robots and the reality is that technology will be available to create vast robot workforces which mostly build themselves. You need them for megastructural building or planetary terraforming. This isn't 1940s robot sci-fi anymore either, we are right to be worried about artificial intelligence being a possible threat to us, but we also know how much more work robots can do without having anything like a true brain. Your robot vacuum cleaner isn't an android pushing a vacuum cleaner, and it isn't going to rebel and kill you. Vast swarms of constructor robots aren't going to rebel and aren't going to need huge brains to do their work, so the idea that we won't build megastructures in favor of terraforming planets, which is also vastly labor-intensive too, out of fear of a robot rebellion doesn't hold water, any more than getting rid of hammers and toasters does, fearing they might rebel. And at that point the specific concerns about construction cost and maintenance drop a lot, especially as raw energy and raw resources are more relatively valuable when labor is ultra-cheap and robotic. So since the mass and energy cost to make megastructures is less than planets, I think they win even this point. So too, I suspect even a non-robotic civilization could maintain their megastructures by hand in most cases once built. All that leaves where megastructures are concerned is that maybe we won't build habitation ones because we won't have the traditional biology anymore if we're post-human or an AI machine mind dominated future. However, they even more so wouldn't need planets except for raw materials but would still probably need many of those megastructures, just not the biology focused habitation variety in favor of giant computers and power collectors or similar. So in the end, while I do not think our future is one only of planets or only of megastructures, I think it's going to have way, way more of the latter, 
as we saw today, in the contest of planets versus megastructures, megastructures win hands down, even if those are robotic hands or alien tentacles.